Hello and welcome to another episode of The Deal Flow Show. I'm J.P. Maroney, your host, along with Paul Nicolini, my co-host for this episode. And we have a very exciting guest. We have Lynn Bulduck from Fitzgerald Yap and Creditor Firm. And uh, we, we've got some excitement because you've got some deals that have just really premiered. And in fact, we had to reschedule the original interview because some exciting things are going on. So I'm kind of excited to jump into that and learn a little bit more about it. But before we get started, if you could just tell us a little bit about your firm and the work that you do today, the scope of the work that you do. Sure, yep. I'm a corporate and securities attorney. I'm a partner at my firm and I'm the chairperson of the firm's corporate and securities department. My firm uh, is a business law firm. They won't divorce you or get you out of jail, but they'll do everything you need for your business. So employment, tax, litigation, and then of course, corporate insecurities, which I handle. So I handle primarily transactions, whether it's a merger, an acquisition, a private placement, a public offering. Uh, my background is working in-house legal and compliance at investment banks. That's where I learned how to do deals. And then I cut my teeth as a lawyer during the dot-com boom and did a ton of deals then. I've been practicing now, um, well, I've been practicing so long, I'm finally good at it. It's been about 25 years. Very good. Wonderful, wonderful. What made you go into law, Lynn? Oh, I started working at my father's law firm when I was 15 years old. So when I say I've been doing it all my life, I really have. So talk, can you talk a little bit about some, um, one or two of the deals that are kind of right at the tip of your tongue because they're active and I know you were involved in an IPO that either happened last week or this week. I don't know what all you can talk about, but you know, this is the deal flow show. So we'd love to hear about your deal flow. Sure. Um, I had two IPOs pending when the whole pandemic hit in March. I thought both of them would get postponed. Neither one was postponed. The first one was a Reg A plus. That was qualified and they're currently out raising money. But the more exciting one was a full blown firm commitment IPO underwritten by two major Wall Street banks. They were ready to go effective right around March, April. And that's of course when everybody went on lockdown. So we didn't know how we were gonna do the roadshow. Companies based in Washington state, they're in the real estate industry. They are a custom home developer. Well, nothing was postponed. We went on the roadshow. The CEO did about 65 virtual roadshow presentations Never got on a plane once. We went effective last Friday. We closed yesterday. They raised the maximum and they filled the green shoe completely and the deal got done. That's terrific, that really is. Can you speak of the difference between a firm commitment and a best efforts basis? Uh, firm commitment IPOs are rare, at least in the small cap world. Because in a firm commitment, the underwriter, the investment bank, buys the shares themselves and then at a discount and then sells them at the full retail price. That's different than a best efforts because in a best efforts deal, the underwriter agrees to use its best efforts to sell the shares. 
So there's no real amount. Let's say the maximum offering is $50 million. Well, I'm going to use my best efforts to try and sell $50 million worth of your stock. That may or may not get done. But if it's a firm commitment for $50 million, they're giving the company a check for $50 million plus their discount. And it's a discount and a firm commitment versus the sales commission. Because remember, they're not selling, they're buying at a discount. As rare as they are, what are the factors in this deal or others that get a firm commitment that tend to put them into that category? This deal in particular, the company is, of course, revenue generating, they're profitable, and they had a lot of plans for the future. They have a lot of acquisition targets, and they're on pace to do a secondary financing, even though we just closed their initial yesterday. But they're in the real estate industry. And that's something that I've noticed for deals during the last 25, 30 years I've been doing them. It's whatever is hot in the economy, trending, that's where the successful deals happen. For example, you know, 25 years ago, everyone was doing dot-coms. Then we sort of did a lot of oil and gas deals. Life sciences then got real popular. Those are still popular today. But in the last few years, say three, four, five years, I have done more securities transactions, private and public, in the real estate industry than in my entire career. And as you noticed, real estate improved during the pandemic. I mean, everybody wants to buy a house now in the country, but that's really why that this company got a firm commitment. It was trending. It was like the brokers like to say, it had sizzle as well as fundamentals. Can you share how what the max on that was? Uh, the max was $12.5 million. That's another reason why it was it got done. It wasn't something insurmountable. You mentioned that this, the, the company uh, did 65, you said 65 virtual presentations prior to the offering? Yes. So how, is that part of how COVID has affected? Can you, you talk about that? How has COVID really affected the capital markets and the process of going public? Well, people who did not want to do things virtually, you know, sort of the old school people that liked to do things in person and handshake deal, they were actually forced to do things virtually or their deals didn't get done. Some embraced it, some still don't like it. I know I have one older partner at my firm, he doesn't like it, he has to have his secretary set it up for him, but even he was forced to do it. So what we found in my IPO 65 roadshow presentations. I don't know if you could have done 65 roadshow presentations in person. It would have taken so long. I don't know if you could have all done it in New York. There would have been a lot of travel. There would have been a lot of expense. It, all of the meetings, the dinners, the lunches, everything. So that really changed. And I think it's going to stay that we'll still do things in person, but we're going to do a lot of things virtually because it's easier, it's less expensive, and it still gets the deal done. That's very cool. And, you know, with the, the landscape changing, I wonder how much it will go back to the way it was before. If this is going to stretch the rubber band and people will now obviously look to, we can cover more ground in less time for less money and less drain on our resources. Right. 
um, and be able to get something across the finish line. As you watched this, I don't know how involved you were in the planning and execution of the road show, but at least as being part of this and seeing it from your perspective, what are some of the tips or things that you would suggest anyone that's going to plan something similar that they would want to have in their arsenal, things that they'd want to pay attention to or that they'd want to make sure they have in place to be successful with a virtual roadshow? Well, it's the same thing as when you did them in person, be prepared. But when it's virtual, be prepared from a technology perspective, practice, set up, have a fake meeting, because technology issues, it can be embarrassing when you're in front of, you know, a big investment bank. So all of that needs to be ready. And of course, we do have disclosures that now we have to say, uh, the COVID disclosure is one thing that question always came up, how has COVID affected your business? And in my client's case, the real estate had actually helped, but don't forget that. I mean, got to say, you know, a little bit of the bad, as you know, my mom used to say, you got to take the bitter with the better. So don't shy away from talking about COVID. We all know it's there and we all know it's a risk. It's okay to mention it. Something interesting that happened, not with my deal, but the SEC issued a lot of letters, about 30 to companies that started blaming everything on COVID because they were using it to cover up their real negative financial results that were as a result of something else, not COVID. And they said, you know what? You're blaming it all on COVID, but we think it's something else. So don't over-disclose. Don't blame everything on COVID. Be honest. Uh, Lynn, can you speak a little about the Reg A process versus a traditional IPO? And do you see Reg A's more often now? I know in the years past, it was sort of a new way to come public. Uh, can you speak about that, Reg A's versus your traditional IPOs? It's interesting because I had both at exactly the same time so I could prepare. Uh, the Reg A plus flew through the SEC. I was shocked. We had two or three rounds of comments and they were done. Comparatively speaking, the S1, remember now, the S1 was going to be listed on NASDAQ and the Reg A Plus is on the OTC, so you have more issues. But the S1 process took about six to nine months to get through the SEC. They needed full-blown audited financial statements. They had a full review. You had an FINRA review because we had two underwriters. You had the NASDAQ review. And then you have the SEC review. So it's sort of like conducting a symphony orchestra. You've got to get all the players to play all at the same time in the same note. So it took longer. It cost more money. However, bottom line, the Reg A Plus deal, they're still out raising money and they've been doing it since June. The S1 deal, it's done. The results, I don't, maybe the proof is in the pudding. Reg A Plus is faster, costs less but the results may not be as good as the regular process. Do you, do you see the Reg A, do you see the reception from the broker dealers with the Reg A's becoming larger as we get further along in the process? Yep, there is an underwriter on the Reg A Plus that I was working on, only one, not two, and it was a best efforts. 
but if we can do deals faster, easier, less expensive, it's a great thing. But the problem I see with Reg A Plus is that they can't go directly to NASDAQ or the NYSE American or you know a stock exchange because they're not a reporting company. They have to file reports, but the reports they file only qualify to be on the OTC QB market. So if you wanna do a Reg A Plus, you're gonna start off on the OTC market, and then you have to become a reporting company and uplist to the NASDAQ or the NYSE American. So it's sort of, you know, a little bit of a hurdle and a two-step process to getting to a larger exchange in the Reg A Plus. On the IPOs, are you seeing the fulfillment or the purchases of these shares coming mostly from mom and pop retail, or is it more institutional or family offices, or where are you seeing the biggest movement of the money in the capital markets? It's institutional and family office. I'm seeing a lot of retail interest in private placements. We, of course, do private placements as well, and I have one. They make a sanitizing product. They made it before, you know, anybody even knew what COVID-19 was. That one shot through the roof. It almost, it's like individual investors think the market's too high, don't trust the market, too volatile. So they weren't investing in the public offerings, but they still had money they wanted to invest. So they invested privately. In the IPOs we did, it was all institutional and family office. That's interesting. Are the product, uh, the one that you did with the private placement or the private placements you're handling, are they more, are they raising equity? Or are these yield, like, you know, uh, debt products? Or what sort of thing are they? Just plain old vanilla common stock. I also do have something interesting, too, that happened during the pandemic, if you want to talk about private deals. Um, I represent a lot of PE funds and Several of them have pivoted during the pandemic. For example, one fund is big into the hospitality real estate. They would build hotels from the ground up or buy a hotel, renovate it and run it. And you know, they're a fund that is in the hospitality sector. Well, what happened to the hotels during the pandemic? Of course, they all became distressed. So my client dropped all their funds, pivoted, made two distressed asset funds. And now has a whole new plan and a whole two new offerings that say, we're gonna go out now, we're going to acquire all of these distressed hotels, renovate them, rehabilitate them, and then come out when the pandemic is over with this beautiful new hotel that's gonna make you know, a billion dollars. So a distressed asset fund is now a popular thing in the PE world. Very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the deal flow process in just a moment. But if you're watching or listening to this episode of the Deal Flow Show, you can get access to more episodes and also subscribe and follow us to get future episodes by going to thedealflowshow.com. Um, you know, Paul, we've talked a lot about Harbor City's rollout to the broker-dealer community. Um, you mentioned, Lynn, the acceptance of some issuers or maybe sponsors of this virtual process or non-virtual process. 
How are you seeing an evolution, not just from COVID, but an evolution of the deal-making process in the digital space today? What, what changes from using technology platforms and things like that from the old school way of doing business? In a way, it makes a lot more emails because now it's not you're not sitting together working on something, you're making changes and going back and forth. So I think the workflow has, is a little more intensive. It's a little more challenging from a document perspective to collaborate on things. A lot of people have been slow to adopt, you know, screen sharing. So I can sit here and point at this word you might want to change and all of that. That has been a challenge. The rest of it has worked very well. I think that people are able to do things quicker using the technology. You don't have to wait for people to fly around. All due diligence was always done. You know, you put all the documents in your data room, then the underwriter and all of the selling group members review them. That was sort of always online. So that really wasn't new at all, but it's been the collaboration that's been a challenge. A lot of emails and phone calls, and we could probably all get better at using virtual meetings and sharing to collaborate. But I think overall, it's been a help and not a hindrance because I think we've been able to get more done this way because we don't spend time and money traveling. In that process too, some of the personal touch get, gets lost, right? Because it's mostly virtual. So it's hard to kind of feel somebody get a feel for where they're going with a with a deal. Well, you know, it's interesting because Harbor City, we've got people all around the world that we work with and we have team members that are on our team that actually I've never met in person. Right. And a lot of people and and strategic partners we've done business with, investors who've put capital in, um, we've got people that we've just never but I I grew up kind of in that world. So Back in 2002, I kind of went full-time building businesses primarily on the internet uh, long before Harbor City was even a thought. And we were doing teleseminars back in the day when you would put 25 to a couple hundred people on a teleseminar. What, you know, public companies do conference calls, right, um, for their stockholders, very common, but we were using them for a pitch or a sell. And, and it was working and then migrated to the virtual world. So it's really interesting to see everyone else being forced to catch up with that in this, in this new changing so environment. So you were a pioneer. Really. I was. <laughs> yeah, Shirley, back in the day when... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Lynn, what's, uh, tell us a little bit about when you're working with this, either a sponsor or other people. What are, what are deal breakers for you? When things don't match, you can sort of tell that something is wrong in a deal. And a lot of it is gut instinct. I think the biggest mistakes I've ever made in my career was not listening to my gut saying something is wrong here. Can't tell what it is. One example is back in the day when we actually had personal meetings, we were doing an IPO for a company and nobody had ever met the underwriter. They had an address on Wall Street and you know the deal goes on. So we talked on the phone, we processed everything, we went effective, and then we didn't know what happened. My client never got any money, we couldn't get a hold of the underwriter. The client actually got on a plane, flew to New York City, went to the underwriter's office, 
It was a door with a little window next to it. And when she looked in the window, there was a folding table and a chair in the office and there was no one in it. True story. We should have known. There wasn't, there was, they couldn't raise any money. I don't know what they were doing, but you sort of get a feeling that something isn't, something's amiss. You've got to trust your gut. So when things like that happen, you know, look into it, do your due diligence and not just in paper. Something else that was interesting, not necessarily virtual, but in a private placement that I represented the managing dealer on, because we also represent, you know, the banks themselves, because I have experience doing that. I had to fly out to Trinidad. It was an oil and gas deal. And we flew out to Trinidad where the company was located to do our due diligence site inspection. So we go out there and there's oil all over the ground. The people in Trinidad have to build their houses on sticks because oil will come into your house. So we're all very happy because there's oil everywhere. We go out to the field and they turn on the spigots and oil comes out. Everything looks great, right? So we proceed with the deal, we raise a bunch of money and guess what? We can't produce the issuer can't produce the oil in commercial quantities. It is so expensive because the oil that came out of the ground was chunky and you had to steam it and make it viscous. It cost too much money. They never made a dime. We all lost money. So don't take things at face value. That's the moral of my story. How do you respond to setbacks and failures for yourself when a deal doesn't go like it should or a relationship in business doesn't work out or a project a company anything like that where you hit the wall what is your process for mentally working around that and continuing you learn from every failure and disappointment that you have don't judge a book by its cover don't take everything at face value if something smells funny or seems odd, it is odd. There's a problem. So it's just the same, you know, I guess it's all just chalk it up to experience. It's disappointing at the time. It's particularly disappointing for me in that oil and gas deal because I personally invested in it too. So I don't do that anymore. But you have to learn from it and move on. There's another deal right around the corner. What I'd like to get into in just a moment is sort of your preparation or deal evaluation process. But if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to more episodes and subscribe or follow us to get access to the future episodes as we release them by going to thedealflowshow.com. So we've got Lynn Bulldock with us today, and we've been going through some, some, as you've been listening, some of her own personal experiences. You put together, a, when you're putting together a deal, what is your process? Um, do you have you know, a checklist, or how do you evaluate, other than that gut check, which I think is super critical and comes, probably strengthens like a muscle with every deal that you do, but... What is your process for evaluating the deal flow or as you're working maybe with other deal makers, what do you recommend as a process for evaluating those opportunities? For companies listening out there, uh, be prepared. Have your corporate ducks in a row. 
you underestimate the value of your minutes, your meetings, your corporate records, having your signed contracts, that is a very intensive and exhaustive process to get everything an underwriter or a managing dealer needs for their due diligence requirements for FINRA. Have it before you have the meeting. Have all your minutes, have all your signed agreements because they're gonna ask you for it. And if you don't have it, you have to go create it. It takes time and then they lose interest. The key is in the preparation. If you're prepared, once you're ready for a private or a public, it doesn't matter. You have, they have to do due diligence on the private placements as well. It doesn't matter if they're one million or a hundred million dollars. Have all of your corporate ducks in a row. Be prepared and then the banker will move forward with the financial analysis. So that's my best advice. People underestimate that. I had a acquisition that was pending it, uh, it closed in April. So it started about January. It was a $50 million acquisition of a private company with a bank on it. The company had been in business oh, almost 30 years. They had never done minutes. They never did anything. They just kept on doing their business. It was very successful. But when it came time to sell it, it was a mess. It got delayed because there is a lawyer for the buyer and they're demanding all of these records. They had never issued stock certificates. It was incredible. We were there every night creating all these documents and it really was not necessary. It almost blew the deal because all the time it took, all the expense it took, the buyer almost walked away. The devil is in the details, right? And in the preparation. Yes. Uh, Lynn, tell us why you uh, or why someone would go to you for your services in the deal making process. Well, personally, I got my start working in house at investment banks before I was even a lawyer. I know what the banks want. I know about their due diligence process, which we just talked about. I know how they want their documents to look. And I know how to sell a deal. This all benefits the issuer. For example, in a prospectus or a private placement memorandum, it's a balancing act. Yes, you have to have all of the legal disclosures required. However, you have to make it attractive. It has to sell the deal. If the deal doesn't sell, any money you spent on a lawyer was wasted. So you see these documents and they have just boilerplate risk factors and they go on and on, they're not even applicable. It's not attractive. It doesn't highlight the benefits of the company and why you should invest with the risks of investing. There is a balancing act there. And I learned through working with investment banks how to, you know, walk that tightrope between selling a deal and being, you know, legally protected because it's an insurance policy as well, of course, for investor lawsuits, but it can't be like, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling, because it's not. So that's the, I think the biggest unique service offering that I have is I know what the bankers want to see in a deal. What kind of people would you like to connect to, connect with from our audience and our other guest speakers? Um, my target client, is any company 
that wants to pursue a transaction, I'll give you an example. My favorite client was a brand new baby startup company. We literally formed their corporation. We got them all their employment agreements, all of their contracts, their licensing agreements, distribution, et cetera. They were in the um, pharmaceutical industry. We took them through three rounds of private financing in A, B, and C. During that time, they got approval to sell their product in Mexico. B round, got approval to sell the product in Europe. C round, sold the product to vets in the US and got FDA clearance finally after those three private rounds. We took them public on NASDAQ with two major investment banks. They went public in 2007. They're still public today and they're still my client. That's my favorite client. I will look at startups. Many lawyers don't. But when you look at a startup and help them, maybe you don't make a lot of money at the beginning. But look at, I've represented this company for 20 years now. I made a lot of money on them. And it was easier because I helped them to structure from the beginning. It was, you know, made me very happy because I got to see the whole life cycle of a startup company through success, which can be you know, rare, but that's my target client. Any company that wants to grow, wants to do a transaction, wants to buy another company, sell their company, raise money, go public. Just out of curiosity, what was the time frame between when y'all started the first fundraising and when the company finally went public? It took seven years. Seven years, very interesting. Well, if you're listening or watching this episode of The Deal Flow Show, I'm JP Maroney, this is Paul Nicolini. And if you are looking for additional episodes, you can get our archives as well as follow us or subscribe to get future episodes by going to thedealflowshow.com. We have a great guest on, Lynn Bulldock with us. And uh, you wanna wrap it up with our final question? Yeah, Lynn, can you share with us something that um, the business community wouldn't otherwise know about yourself? I could give them a couple of tips. Uh, number one, right now, examine your force majeure clauses in your contracts. Make sure they include pandemics. That became an issue when this whole thing hit. Force majeure clauses excuse non-performance of a contract. Um, a lot of them didn't cover the pandemic, the lockdown, the government restrictions. Examine those in your contracts, use them moving forward. Another thing that I think is a great tip for companies right now is a business continuity plan, a BCP. What happens if there's another disaster? What happens if the lights go out? What happens if there's a fire and you can't go to your office? How are you gonna work virtually? We've pretty much all done it now. We know how it works. Have a business continuity plan in place now and ask your vendors if they have one. For example, I mean, how are they gonna to continue to provide services to your company if there's an earthquake and their office is shut down? So that's a couple of tips that I think businesses should be thinking about and implementing right now. If folks wanted to get in touch with you, Lynn, what would be the best way for them to reach out for you? Just give me a call or send me an email. I'm happy to talk with anybody. And, you know, 
have a good discussion about what your possibilities are for your transaction. My phone number is 949-788-8900. My email is my first initial L, my last name, B-O-L-D-U-C, at F-Y-K-Law.com. Excellent. Lynn, we really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, once again, if you're watching or listening to this episode, you can connect with us at thedealflowshow.com. On behalf of Paul Nicolini, myself, J.P. Maroney, Lynn, thank you so much for coming on to the show and sharing with our audience and giving back from your storehouse of knowledge. We'll see you again in another episode very, very soon. Take care. Thank Bye. you so much, Lynn. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe.